This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. The people of Israel used to celebrate the 13th day of the month of Adar as a festival called Yom Nikanor. It commemorates the final battle that Yudah Maccabee won when he triumphed over the forces of General Nicanor. This was a holiday of our people commemorating a great victory against near-impossible odds. Many of our festivals from the Maccabean Revolt were annulled following the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. But two of these holidays, Hanukkah and Yom Nicanor, continued to be celebrated even after the destruction. Hanukkah survived, but Yom Nicanor was eventually annulled, and later, in the Gaonic period, it was replaced with Ta'anit Esther, the Fast of Esther, which is essentially what the 13th of Adar continues to be for our people today. But the fast begins only in the morning of the 13th, which means that we can still choose to commemorate and revive Yom Nicanor on the night of the 13th, which is tonight. And I think a good suggestion for anyone interested in participating in this revival would be to learn chapters 14 and 15 of the second book of Maccabees, which basically tells the story connected to this holiday. But for those who might not have access to this text, and even for those who do, I'd like to play a class I taught four years ago on Yom Nicanor. I'd also like to encourage listeners to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested in learning about or celebrating Yom Nicanor. It really is a great story, and our heroes deserve to be remembered. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Spotify. And please leave a positive rating and review because that can really help us spread new ideas to a much wider audience. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at visionmag.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, if you're interested in supporting the show or sponsoring an episode of either The Next Stage or of The Hebrew Identity, our podcast on the weekly Torah portion, please contact us by heading over to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar up top. A lot of work goes into creating these podcasts and into running Vision Magazine in general, so I want you to know that your support is deeply appreciated. I'd like to wish all of our listeners a Purim Sameach and a meaningful Yom Nikonor and Tanit Aster. And now, without further delay, I'd like to share the recording of my Yom Nikonor class. So we used to have many Chagim from the revolt of the Maccabim. The only one we have left now is Chanukah, right? which is an eight-day festival commemorating the victory of the Battle of Betzur and the liberation of Yerushalayim and the rededication of the Beit HaMikdash. And of course, there was the miracle of the oil that lasts eight days to teach us that the entire battle and even the broader war was really miraculous, in fact. But we also used to have many other Chagim, many other festivals on our calendar from this war. It was a 26-year guerrilla war. And most of these Chagim were abolished. They're listed in Megillat Ta'anit. And um, after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, we stopped observing most of these Chagim for a number of reasons. One of them was uh, that the kingdom we achieved as a result of this war. This war was to liberate our homeland from the Syrian Greeks, and then we established a Jewish kingdom in our land. And that kingdom no longer existed. So that was maybe one reason, simple reason, why a lot of these Chagim were annulled. But I think there are also deeper reasons 
Uh, one of them might have been the conflict between Chazal, the sages, or many of the sages, and the descendants of Shimon, the Hasmonean kings, who as Koanim should not have taken the kingship for themselves, and also weren't always politically on the same page as our sages. Uh, another reason is the whole aspect of our identity and our culture that encouraged uh, militancy, revolution against foreign rulers, was phased out, uh, A, as not to antagonize the Romans, who occupied us and uh, were very oppressive, and were in some cases looking for excuses to destroy us, and also to not encourage us to actually fight them. And uh, a lot of the Chagim that commemorated the Maccabee victory, or different Maccabee victories throughout that war, really um, part of the celebration and part of the commemoration was this reminder that uh, we have this mitzvah to free our land from foreign rule. So there was a sense that this was something dangerous and needed to be kind of faded into the background of our culture and our identity in order for us to be able to survive Galut. That we shouldn't be so warlike, we shouldn't be so militant. And uh, therefore, this was kind of downplayed. Uh, a lot of these holidays, certain aspects of our culture, um, you know, we have the three oaths, that uh, all, it was really all Chazal, our sages of blessed memory, trying to tame us, trying to stop us from being so revolutionary and so committed to freeing our homeland from the Romans so that we can survive because uh, revolt after revolt after revolt wasn't working for us. And they were defeating us, destroying us. They destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Abit HaMikdash, and uh, we were being decimated. And uh, this is the decision our sages made. But I think it now that we've come back to our land and we have independence and uh, we're rebuilding our civilization, I think it is relevant to unpack some of these chagim and kind of remember them, discuss them, at least know the story. Uh, most young Jews, most old Jews, don't know the story of Yom Nikanor. So I figured tonight it would be uh, relevant and appropriate that we learn this story. So, um, about uh, a couple of years after the Hanukkah story, after the victory at, at Beit Sur, and then the liberation of Yerushalayim and the rededication of the Beit HaMikdash, um, um, basically Lysias was the general who Antiochus IV had put in charge of defeating Judea. And there were many failed attempts to defeat us, and each time we were victorious. So, after, um, after the victory of, uh, of Betsur, in the Hanukkah story, Antiochus IV um, dies on another campaign, and uh, his son, nine-year-old Antiochus V, becomes king. 
with the regent Lysias, who had been in charge of the Judean War, he is now the regent. He is now responsible, you know, for uh, for the kingdom and for helping to raise uh, Antiochus V to be king. And there's another battle. Uh, ultimately, they come again from the south, this time with elephants, which was breaking a treaty between the Syrian Greeks and Rome to come with elephants. Elephants were like the tanks of the ancient world. And in that battle, the battle of Beit Zechariah, a little bit south of Jerusalem, um, Eleazar, the fourth son of Matityahu, the younger brother of Yudah Maccabi, he believes that, uh, that the king, that Antiochus V, is on top of one of these elephants. He goes and he kills the elephant from underneath with a spear, and the elephant is killed but crushes him on its way down. The Maccabeum retreat for the first time in the war, back to Yushalayim. Lysias lays siege to Jerusalem and then hears that Philip, who had been with Antiochus IV on his campaign and had been placed in charge of the kingdom, has taken the throne. So Lysias now has a political issue. He has to go back to Antioch in order to retake the throne for Antiochus V from Philip. So he offers a truce to the Maccabim. He says, no more persecution, no more forcing idolatry, no more forcing Greek culture on you. You can live according to the ways of your people, but remain part of our empire. Don't forget all this independence. Now, Yudah Maccabee's forces were comprised of two groups. There was his group, like his family and their close followers, who we can call the Maccabim. And then there were the Hasidim, who was the, they, they made up the majority of the Hasmonean force. And at this point, until then, they were fighting together, one common cause. But at this point, there's a division. The Hasidim say, this is a good deal, we should take it. And the Maccabim say no. The Hasidim, their argument is, we were fighting for freedom to, to live as Jews, to live according to the ways of our ancestors. How can, you know, this is a great deal. The Maccabim say no. We're fighting for political independence. We have a mitzvah to liberate our homeland from foreign rule to implement Hebrew sovereignty in our land. And the only way we can be sure that we will have freedom to live <coughs> according to the laws and ways of our people is if we have political independence, is if we're not living under the rule of foreigners. Now, passively the deal was accepted, meaning Lysias anyway needed to go back to Antioch in order to fight Philip. Take the, to take the throne. And the Hasidim make up the bulk of the Maccabee army at this time anyway. So if they're not involved in the war anymore, our forces are depleted. So Lysias does go back. The majority of the Hebrew fighting forces go back to their farms and villages and families. 
and the Maccabim are holding Jerusalem. And that's basically how things are left. And there was a Chag. When the siege is lifted and Lysias returns from Judea to Antioch, there is a Chag implemented on the Hebrew calendar on the 28th of Shvat. Now, Manelaus, who had been the Kohen Gadol appointed by Antiochus IV, he was the leader of the more radical Hellenizers. He was not even a Kohen. He was from the tribe of Binyamin. But he was made the high priest uh, by Antiochus, by royal decree. And he was very much responsible for instigating a lot of the conflict between uh, the Judeans and the Syrian Greeks. And as a gesture of peace, Lysias and the child king Antiochus V, uh, upon lifting the siege, they take him on Elias and they suffocate him in a tower of ashes. They go back to Antioch, they defeat Philip, kill him, take the throne, and Judea is left in peace. The Acre still stands. The Acre is the fortress built just next to the Temple Mount where most of the Hellenizers and Syrian Greek soldiers live. So, a couple of years go by, and Demetrius I, who grew up a prisoner in Rome, his father had been emperor, um, but his father had been killed, and then his uncle, Antiochus IV, killed the assassin and became the emperor, while Demetrius was a prisoner. Now he's in his early 20s. He sees that um, his cousin, Antiochus V, a child, has become the king. He wants to reclaim his kingdom. He escapes from Rome. And he comes to Antioch, kills Lysias and Antiochus V, and he is now the emperor. So... The deal that Lysias made with the Judeans no longer stands, right? which seems to prove um, the uh, position of the Maccabim to be a more legitimate uh, and sophisticated position, certainly more you know, politically aware than um, that of the Hasidim. So... Now, Demetrius, he's the emperor, and he sends, you know, Bakhidis to basically extend his rule, make sure that, uh, solidify his rule in Judea. And they, he comes and he basically wrestles Jerusalem from the Maccabim, without much of a fight, without much resistance. And he installs a Kohen named Eliakim, who actually calls himself Alchemist, as Kohen Gadol. And he's the new appointed Kohen Gadol. He's not like Manalaeus. Manalaeus wasn't even a Kohen. He was part of the more radical uh, party of Hellenizers. Alchemist is not this. Alchemist is a moderate Hellenist. 
he lives according to the Torah, but his worldview is a Western worldview. His worldview is Greek. His values are Greek. And uh, from his perspective, the empire is good, and the Maccabim are a bunch of fanatics. So Bakhidis successfully takes Jerusalem, installs alchemists as the Kohen Gadol. This is a compromised candidate because he's Jewish enough for the Judeans and for the Hasidim. The Maccabim don't like him because he's uh, appointed by the emperor. So any Kohen Gadol appointed by the emperor is no good because he's appointed by the emperor. The Hasidim see him as good enough. The Syrian Greeks see him as good enough. Compromise candidate. Because his values, his politics are with the Syrian Greeks. But he's a real Kohen and he lives according to, he, he lives according to the Torah. You know, at least in a halachic sense. Yeah. I'm finding it kind of interesting. Why, uh, <coughs> uh, why would the Greeks attempt See, why would the Greeks attempt to go into uh, go after the priesthood as opposed to the actual leadership? That was the leadership. At that time, Cohen Gadol was essentially the leader of the Judeans. But, but, uh, the political leader. Huh? Political leader of Israel was a Cohen Gadol. The Cohen Gadol wasn't the guy with the sword, it was the Maccabee with the sword. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the Maccabee who were the, who were the, mili- who was the military at the time. So why would uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm just having a, having a hard time covering why the Greeks would attempt to insert Kona Gadol. It would, Kona Gadol. I mean, it would seem to me more like they would try to make some kind of infiltrations into the Maccabee themselves. Uh, that's not possible. That is not. No. Okay. Certainly not at that time. Okay. So. And and they and they have their own army. I Meaning, as far as they're concerned, the army in Judea is a Syrian Greek army. Okay. There's no other legitimate fighting force. So, right now you have a situation where Alchemist is being installed. About sixty Hasidim, sixty representatives of the Hasidim, come to Jerusalem to greet Alchemist, welcome him as Kohen Gadol. He suspects them all of being collaborators with the Maccabim and as having fought in the wars on the side of Judah against the Syrian Greeks and against the Hellenists, and he has 60 of them killed. The Bakhidis, for reasons that aren't really relevant to our story, other things taking place in the empire, he has to leave. And uh, Judean society is not unified. The Hellenists and maybe some of the people in the center are with alchemists. But a lot of the people are with Yudah, who's now you know, living in the mountains again. It's not open warfare, but there's uh, friction. And alchemists knows that there can never be peace in Judea until the Maccabim are gone. So he goes to Demetrius and he asks for a force to come and hunt down Yudah Maccabee and get rid of him. And Demetrius sends the general Nicanor, 
who is commander of the elephant unit. He comes to Judea and he meets with Judah, meets with Judah Maccabee. And there's mutual respect. They're both, you know, ferocious warriors and they actually become friends. They become friends. Nicanor even encourages Judah to take a wife, start a family, and to become normal, you know, basically retire. There's nothing to fight for anymore. You can live freely. You have Shabbat, you have Rosh Chodesh, Brit Milah. Your culture, we're not forcing anything on you. It's true that a lot of the Judeans liked Hellenism and wanted to live according to the Greek ways. But nobody's forcing. We don't need to fight for political independence. You know, you think you can do that? Yeah, how long it might take? How many people are going to die? Things are okay. Because what's Nicanor's job, as he understands it at this point? Peace. That's his job. Peace. What does peace mean? Who likes peace? Who fights for peace? The oppressor fights for peace. Whenever there's a conflict going on somewhere in the world, you know who the oppressor is because they're the side that says, we just want peace. What does peace mean? Peace means a non-violent version of the status quo. That's what peace means. What do the oppressed say? We want justice. We want freedom. We want change. We want revolution. There is something worth fighting for, so we're going to be violent. That's the oppressed. The oppressor says, no, violence is bad. We want a nonviolent version of the status quo. We just want peace. So Nicanor's job is peace. That's what the Syrian Greeks want, peace. And Nicanor feels that if I can convince Yudamaka B, the leader of the revolution, to retire, to start a family, to live a normal life, I've achieved my goals, I've done my job. But alchemist doesn't agree. Alchemist doesn't believe that peace can exist while the Jewish fundamentalists are so strong. So he tells the emperor, Demetrius, that Nicanor is not doing his job. So Demetrius tells Nicanor, I sent you there to capture Yudam Maccabee. Do your job. So Yudah suspects something different about Nicanor. The, his attitude has changed somehow, maybe. Something off about him. And he disappears. Yudah disappears. Now Nicanor is angry. He's under pressure from the emperor. He goes to the Beit HaMikdash and he threatens the Kohanim, and he says, he points at the Beit HaMikdash, and he says that if they don't hand over Yudah, he is going to destroy the temple. Yudah has trouble galvanizing a force. You know, many of his warriors had gone back to their families, had gone back to their farms, had gone back to their villages, had gone back to their lives. It's hard to convince them to come back to the battlefield, to live in the mountains. They did that already, you know, for like five years. 
So only those most loyal come, eh, roughly two or three thousand. And in the Battle of Adasa, uh, near Abed Choron, they they're going to meet the forces of Nicanor. Now, the day before the battle, of course, they fast. That was an ancient Hebrew custom. Right? We fast before battle. We, of course, also did it um, in the story of Esther and Mordechai. Right? Before battle, we fast. And, of course, there's still this machloket, you know, between the Hasidim and the Maccabim. Do we have an obligation to fight for political independence? Or is it enough to live under foreign rule according to the ways of our ancestors? According to the ways of our Torah? That's the position of the Hasidim. That it's worth fighting and risking our lives for the Torah, for the mitzvot, for the halachot, for our culture, for our values. But political independence? To free our homeland from foreign rule? To make a Jewish state, kingdom, whatever? That's not worth war. That's not worth risking our lives. That's their position. The Maccabim, of course, the opposite. They say, we agree with you when it comes to Torah, mitzvot, halacha, our culture, our values, resistance to cultural imperialism. But we have an obligation to liberate our homeland from foreign rule. It's mitzvah to make a Hebrew kingdom here. This is a machloket. And Yudah is left with between two and 3,000 troops. And the night before the battle, he has a dream. And in the dream, Chonyo comes to him. Chonyo was the last legitimate Kohen Gadol. Before the emperor, Antiochus IV, started appointing high priests. Chonyo was the last legitimate Kohen Gadol, and he might also be the grandfather of Yudah Maccabi. He might have been the father of Matityahu, because Chonyo and Yochanan could be the same name. I can say Matityahu ben Yochanan HaKohen. Right? So, in his dream, Chonyo introduces Yudah to another man, a man with silver hair, who he's told is Yirmiyahu Navi. And Yirmiyahu hands Yudah a golden sword and tells him to go and vanquish the enemies of Am Yisrael. Now this is a very significant dream because it's likely that Yirmiyahu was the source that the Hasidim were bringing against the Maccabim. Because part of Yirmiyahu's nivuah, part of Yirmiyahu's message was not to revolt against foreign rule, not to revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, not to revolt against the Babylonians. That was his nivuah. So the Hasidim can point to Yirmiyahu and say, we don't necessarily have to fight to free our land. But we know that if a Navi comes and tells us to break halacha, one time, temporarily, we break halacha, we violate halacha. Navi is telling us. But if a Navi comes and tells us a mitzvah is no longer a mitzvah, we don't accept. 
And Yirmiyahu delivered a message, one-time message. In this specific situation, we were supposed to submit to the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, of the Babylonians, this time. But that doesn't mean we don't have a mitzvah all the time to liberate our homeland and achieve Hebrew independence. And by coming to Yudah in his dream, Yirmiyahu, and handing Yudah a golden sword, Yirmiyahu is essentially saying, do not let them use me as a source to violate the Torah. Do not let them use me as an argument against our obligation to free our land from foreign rule. On the 13th of Adar, Yudah's forces See those of Nicanor. Nicanor has closer to 9,000 troops. Yudah strengthens his troops with uh, an inspirational talk before the battle. That's the role of the Kohen, by the way. Yudah is, of course, a Kohen. And uh, in addition to being the commander of the Hebrew forces, he's also the Mishua Milchama, the, the war priest. It's his job to inspire the fighters before the battle. And the fighters, many of them were scared because they saw this, the numerical superiority of the Syrian Greek forces. But we have halacha, it's actually in the Rambam, it's in Halachot Melachim, that it's actually forbidden, it's actually a sore to be afraid in battle. Actually a prohibition of our Torah to, to be afraid of the enemy in battle. And we have a positive commandment for a Kohen, in this case Yudah, to come and inspire the troops to know what they're fighting for and to fill them with emunah to go and fight the wars of the Kadosh Baruch Hu. They attack the Syrian Greek forces with such ferocity that those they don't kill right away, Nicanor, by the way, is one of the first to die in the battle, the rest retreat, Judeans from all the nearby villages pour out of their homes and attack the retreating Syrian Greek soldiers. None survive. Yudah cuts off the head and right arm of Nicanor, hangs it on the wall surrounding the Beit HaMikdash because he had lifted his hand against the temple, threatened to destroy it. And Am Yisrael declares a festival. 13th of Adar, the day before Yom Mordechai. Each year, this was a festival in ancient Israel. <laughs>